0: before uh, summer break is up, and and I'm afraid to say the S word, but school is on the horizon. It's on the horizon, and uh, so a few more weeks, people trying to get away, but I'm glad you're here, glad you're here. Here's what I want to talk to you about today. It's hard to know whom you can trust, isn't it? I mean, in a world of fake news where we have become more and more uh, suspicious of just about everything that we hear, we become more and more suspicious of just about everything that we see, it's hard to know whom you can trust. But the church of Jesus should be different it should be different and that's what Paul's gonna talk to us about today in this series called blueprint This is our summer series. We've been walking through the the little book of 1 Timothy and Paul is giving instruction to a younger leader. His name is Timothy, thus the book. He's a a young pastor of a church in a place called Ephesus and Paul's laying out this blueprint of what the structure of the church should look like. And today, he's going to tell us that when it comes to leadership when we're taught church and when we talk leadership it's not just the quality of your work that qualifies you it's the quality of your character your character now who is this for well if you are currently a church leader in heart of life um, this this is for you so yes Pastors and deacons and teachers and life team leaders and ministry heads. I mean, if you are a leader, that this certainly applies to us today. If you are an aspiring leader, I mean, that's something that you so desire to grow into. You want to you be a part of, of of walking out what it means to follow Jesus in that way, then this applies to you. But it also applies to people like parents. Because parents lead. When we use the word lead, we're talking influence. Parents influence. This is for you. If you are married, this is for you. If you are a friend, This is for you. The reason I'm saying that is because by the time we are done looking at these qualities today, I want you to tell me who wouldn't want their spouse to have these qualities. And who wouldn't want their friendships to have these qualities. Well, here's my challenge to you today. You be that spouse. You be that friend. You strive to grow in those qualities that you expect other people to have toward you. These character qualifications that Paul lists today, they really are marks of Christian maturity that every single follower of Jesus is meant to grow in as we model what Jesus looks like. So here we go. First Timothy chapter three is where we have arrived. First Tim- Timothy chapter 3 verse 1, here's what he says. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now in the, in the NIV, which is what I'm reading to you from today, it, it translates this word overseer. There are other translations sometimes that will translate the word elder. Um, Some translations may use the word bishop, and we'll talk about why that is in a minute. Around here, we use the word overseer, elder, pastor interchangeably. But I think this word overseer does a really good job of relating what this role is about. This role of leadership is about servant leaders who oversee. That's what they do. They oversee the life, the teaching, and the ministry of the church. And you get a good sense of the seriousness with which God takes this role When you actually read what the Apostle Paul wrote to the elders, the pastors, the overseers at the church of Ephesus years before he actually writes these qualifications to Timothy. In Acts chapter 20... We read what Paul says to them, and it's likely that some of those leaders that Paul said that to years before are still leaders when he writes these qualifications to Timothy. Let me show you what I mean. Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Here's what he says. Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be Shepherds. So we often use this word shepherd when we think about pastor, we think about shepherd. Here he's using both of those words in describing this role. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with what? With tears. Paul says don't be mistaken, this is tough. It's going to require some nights spent with tears in prayer. It's going to require some days with heartache and some hard conversations. And he says the reason is there will always be wolves. There will always be wolves. Sometimes the wolves come from the outside. Sometimes the wolves are actually from the inside. So he says you got to take care of yourself and you got to take care of the sheep. you got to take care of God's church. Why? Because Jesus shed his blood for her. That's why this matters. And for whatever reason, he has entrusted you to care for his bride. It's no wonder that Paul starts off 1 Timothy 3 saying, if you aspire to this, it's a noble thing. In other words, it's not glamorous, it's hard. And Paul's almost saying, I'm persuading you, look, you stay away from this unless you are absolutely certain that God is calling you To this noble task but it's one thing to desire a noble task it's another thing to be worthy of a noble task and that's where he goes next in verse 2 as he starts to unpack here's how a noble life is evidenced here's what he says check this out we're just gonna walk our way through it now to the overseer now the overseer is to be above Reproach. Above reproach. What does that mean? It it means that your conduct, it means that your life should be at such a caliber that people cannot even accuse you of doing something. And the reason is you stay so far away from those situations that might potentially cause you to compromise that there's just, you give no one any reason to accuse you above reproach. Faithful to his wife. He's talking about marital faithfulness. A one woman man. Whomever you've married, she has your full heart and you give that to no one else. Now there are some people who believe that phrase means that divorce is a disqualifier for pastors. There are some people who believe that phrase means that, that, that just excludes any remarriage ever. I personally believe this qualification is about present faithfulness to your present spouse as evidenced through your heart's attention and your heart's affection being present to your spouse only. I think that's what he's saying. He keeps going. Temperate. Temperate means steady. Temperate means focused. Temperate means that you are not tossed up and down by every new fad that comes along, but you are sober, you are steady in mind and thought. Self-controlled. You ever met one of those people that that they seem to have everybody else in check except themselves? You ever met them? He says, overseers are not supposed to be that way. No one should feel controlled by a pastor except that pastor. That's the word. Respectable. It simply means worthy of respect, it really does. It means that people would desire to listen. It means that people would desire to learn. Hospitable. Hospitable refers to how you use material possessions, particularly your house and food. In America, the American church often translate hospitality as when it's convenient. We do. But, but hospitality often is, is most needed when it's not convenient. Hospitality is to be demonstrated even when we're tired. It's will you open your home. Like not just open your home for a friend to come for dinner, but will you open your home when there are people who are in need of a home? Will you share your food with people who are in need of food? It, it's hospitality able to teach. That phrase is actually translated from a one single Greek word that's only used in one other place in the whole Bible. Only two times in the whole Bible is that phrase used. And both times it's used by Paul. The other place is in 2 Timothy chapter 2. And I didn't, I didn't put it on the screen for you today because we'll get there one of these days. But I'm just at least going to read a little bit of it to you. First, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, he says, The Lord's servant is not to be quarrelsome, but must be kind to everyone, able to teach. Same phrase, not resentful. He says, those who oppose you, you are to deal with them gently so that hopefully they will repent and turn back to Jesus and they won't be entrapped by the, by the devil's snare. In other words, when Paul uses this phrase, able to teach, he's not just talking about speaking the truth to people. He's talking about speaking the truth to people even when people quarrel with you. Even when people are in opposition to you. It's one thing to know and speak the truth. It's a lot harder to know and speak the truth without getting so worked up and losing your cool when people are trolling you, when people are opposed to you. That's the phrase. Not, well, not given to drunkenness. That's exactly what it sounds like. That you are not controlled, yes, by alcohol would be the, would be the primary uh, focus here. We, we could add to that and to not be controlled by anything, really, to not be controlled by food, to not be controlled by praise of people. But here the point is drunkenness. It's alcohol. If, if that controls you, you can't see clearly. You can't oversee if it's blurry. Not violent, but gentle. It's an interesting word, violent. It means don't be a bruiser. Don't be a bully. And that doesn't have to just be physical. That can be words. That can be tone. That can be a glance. But instead, gentleness. We looked at gentleness when we walked through the the fruit of the Spirit. And I told you then, I have yet in all of my years of ministry to ever see a church conference on gentleness. We might do well to have one or two. Gentleness. Not quarrelsome. It just means not, not always looking for a fight. What Paul knows is that in this mission, we don't win people toward the kingdom of God by winning an argument. We, we, that happens when they see the beauty of who Jesus is. Not a lover of money doesn't mean you can't have any money but it means that money better not have you you are free from the allure of wealth you are free from the accumulation of more you are free from that that's not your God that's not your key okay timeout that's just two verses just two verses but I want to go back to my point Anybody in a significant relationship, whether it's your spouse or whether it's a good friendship that you have, anybody not want that in that relationship? Like, anybody not want a spouse? Who loves them more than they love money? Right? You ever seen a relationship where a spouse cares mostly about money and all they ever do is worry about money and it's all about, can we get more money? And you, you, if you're in that relationship, you suddenly kind of think, when maybe they care about money more than they care about me. I mean, anybody not want a relationship like that where, where uh, no quarreling, it's more gentle than it is, right? I, I mean, those are qualities that you look at and go, I want, I want a spouse like that, I, I want friendships like that, and I'm going back to my challenge today. Then you be that spouse and you be that friend, that those qualities would be present in you. Paul continues for overseers, verse 4. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Paul says, this is your first calling. How's the family God has entrusted to him doing what do his kids say about him what does his wife say about him do they feel loved do they feel supported do they feel cared for because the answer to those questions are an indication of what kind of pastor he will be I don't believe this means that a pastor's family can't struggle I hope that's not what it means. I I don't know too many who haven't experienced struggles along the way. I also don't don't believe this applies to grown children who are no longer under his authority. They're grown, they're out, they make decisions. I, I, I don't think that applies. I think it's talking about how does he shepherd his family, how does he love and care for his family when they are under his care, under his responsibility verse 6 he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil Paul says you, you make somebody a leader too quickly especially if they've just become a Jesus follower and it just leaves the door wide open for pride to take over and it'll be their downfall He's saying, give people time for their character to be formed by Christ before you set them up as a model for what Christ-like character looks like. Give them time. This is is the way I relate it. It's kind of like a small market baseball team. Can you relate? A small market baseball team has to rely on developing minor league players. They can't just go out and buy, right, every free agent. They got to develop the talent. But the key is timing. Because bringing someone with talent on too fast, sometimes if they fail, they don't recover. And the point is, the same is true with the church. Maybe you've heard the saying before regarding somebody who has a lot of skill. They have a a lot of talent. Their ability can take them further than their character can keep them. Don't set them up for failure. Now what I love is, Paul doesn't set an age. He doesn't even set a time limit. He just says time. There needs to be time for development. Verse 7. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. The whole point is to create bridges, not barriers to belief in Christ through our words and our conduct. Choose integrity, not cutting corners. Choose kindness, not losing our temper, and so on and so on. Elders, pastors, overseers, aren't selected because they're just popular in the church. They're supposed to be selected because they're proven. And then they are continually proving themselves faithful to God as evidenced in these areas. You can't create a culture of trust without trustworthy people in leadership. You can't. So an overseer can't call people out of sexual sin if he's got a mistress. That won't work. An overseer can't encourage people to sobriety if he's drunk. It just won't work. An overseer is to be an example of the person who removes the log from his own eye so that he can help others remove the speck from their eye. But the point is you got to get the log out because to be an overseer, you got to be able to see you don't want a blind optometrist working on your eyes. No wonder Paul includes it in the blueprint and he says, pastors, elders, overseers, you got to get this right or it'll affect a whole body. But the cool thing is that pastors aren't alone in that. Overseers aren't alone in that. Elders aren't alone in that. Because now Paul's going to name another group of people. And, and because some of the terms are almost identical to what we just read for overseers, I'm, I'm on this one I'm not going to just take it word for word. But I want to read it and then I want us to just get a high view observation if we can. Here's what he says. Verse 8. In the same way, deacons. Everybody say deacons. Deacons are to be worthy of respect. That sounds familiar. Sincere. Not indulging in much wine. Again, you hear the similar phrases. And not pursuing dishonest gain. Sounds familiar. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance In their faith in Christ Jesus deacons the word deacon it means servant or it means minister I'm just a little wordplay that sometimes the way we describe this is if pastors are to be servant leaders then deacons we could describe as leading servants Now, I say leading servants because the truth is we are all supposed to be servants. Every person who puts their faith in Jesus is to serve, just like Jesus came to, to serve us. But where does Paul focus again when he talks about this group of leaders? Same place he focused when he talked about overseers. The word is character. He doesn't talk about their gifting. He doesn't talk about their passions. He doesn't talk about their personalities. He talks about their character. And out of their character, they assist the pastors in leading in ministry. It's one of those things over the years that I have struggled most in. A lot of times it's it's really young deacons and trying to get them to, to see the picture of what God calls them to biblically. Because what they often want is, what's my task? What's my task? What do I do that identifies me as a deacon? And I love the fact that Paul doesn't give any of those identifying factors. All he talks about is their character. And he says, your character is strong, then you simply model what it means to be the first ones who will lay it down anytime there is a need to be served. It's not a specific role that identifies them. It's their character that identifies them. Throughout church history, there have been a bunch of interpretations as to what deacons do and how they function in the church. There has. Some think that when we read this word deacon, it is a second male-only role, because we talked about that with overseers, it's the second male-only role in the church, and they are, they are guys who take care of the very practical aspect of seeing ministry done. I mean, everything from, from buildings to budgets, right? I mean, all that stuff. And then, they point to verse 11, where we read about the women, and they translate that as wives, saying that Paul's saying the wives of Deacon, must, they must be a certain caliber of character in order to help him in his role of ministry. There are others who interpret it differently because that Greek word in verse 11 is the word woman. So he says the word women, it's not wives, it's, it's women. And their question is, um, why would Paul give qualifications for a deacon's wife but not give a qualification for an elder's wife? And so their point is, this this isn't talking about deacons' wives, but it's talking about women who are deacons. And a lot of that conversation, you've got Phoebe in the New Testament. Phoebe is described as a servant. It's the same word, deacon. On the other hand, verse 12 said that a deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well, that's almost an exact phrase that he used for overseers who very clearly, he seems to be saying, is a male role. Then there are others in the church historically who said, what if, what if Paul's describing here something even broader than we typically understand in our culture what if those that he's calling to be deacons really are more like what we would think modern day pastors are? And the reason their wives need to be of a certain caliber of character is because they're on the front lines of, of ministry and, and their deacons slash pastor husbands are, are at these local churches. And what if when Paul's, say, an overseer, he's thinking more of like a description of a bishop role, which, which you might see in some other denominations because the Greek word for overseer is episkopos, which we tend to translate as bishop, and I don't think Paul's playing chess here. That would be consistent with what we see in the second century where a guy named Ignatius, who just happened to be discipled by the apostle John, he goes around setting up a single bishop in areas that oversees entire multiple house churches different churches and then you read the qualifications and every time it talks about an overseer or an elder it's singular and when it talks about deacons it's always plural you put all that together and you go is is that what it means but then you go wait a minute what about those traditional let's say Baptist churches where there's a single pastor who who leads and then there's a, a group of deacons who are involved in that are they right and and Here's my question. Are you confused yet? Anybody dizzy? I did that on purpose because here's where I think we should land humility. Humility. Remember what we studied last week? The Bible's perfect, but sometimes my interpretation is not. Now don't take that too far. Don't take that too far because there are some areas that the Bible is crystal clear on and we are not we are not up for debate on things like who is Jesus? Don't mess with me regarding who is Jesus. We're going to stand our ground. We're going to state it clearly, we're going to stand where, but there are some things like church structure that I would argue that instead of us criticizing other churches who see leadership structure different and might do it differently than we do, maybe the better practice would be for us to go ahead and stand where we believe we should stand because we believe this is where scripture leads us, but maybe a little grace would be better than criticism. Because maybe it's not quite as cut and dry as we think everything is. And maybe it really does take us back to the point of what a good qualified leader should look like. Not slanderous, not quarrelsome, and striving for unity in all things with love. Maybe that's where it should lead us. Don't get me wrong. We're gonna stand where we believe scripture calls us to stand. But just because somebody might not totally agree with us on leadership structure, we are not going to be the place that criticizes. We're not. So let's do a little application here before I turn you loose. Here's the first question. Is your life on a trajectory of Christian maturity? Right, because you all could come here today and just purely pull out the evaluation forms and decide how Jeff is doing as an overseer, or we can actually look at the whole principle of character and start asking questions like this, is, is your life on a trajectory of Christian maturity? Here's my question. How are you doing with hospitality? When been, when's the last time you opened your home? W- when's the last time you shared your food? right when's the last time you used your material possessions in order to bless other people when's the last time how you doing with hospitality because if you are a Jesus follower that ought to be one of those things that's growing in your heart how you doing with self-control how's that going right are you quarrelsome are you gossiping what would your family say regarding how you are loving, caring for them? How about your coworkers and your neighbors who may not be believers, but they know that you are? Do you regularly allow Jesus to identify those areas in your life where you lack? And then when you see them, you confess them. Don't wallow in it. You don't have to sit there and wallow in the in the weakness or in the mistake, but instead you let him pour out his grace into you, that, that while we strayed like sheep, Jesus came after us, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, and he laid down his life for us. You see the weaknesses, you embrace his grace, and you get ready to walk faithfully another day with him. That's what leaders do. Whether you're leading a church, or you're leading a family, or you're leading a team, or you're leading an office, it's what good leaders do. However, can we just say it's hard to lead anything? It's why some people choose not to. It's hard to lead anything. And some of you who lead things that are really big, some of you do, you, you lead you, right, corporations, you lead businesses, you lead, you, you lead things that are really big. It's hard to lead anything. Leaders face pressures that non-leaders don't understand. Therefore, here's the second application. Will you commit to pray for your leaders? And can I go ahead and, and add to this, if you are a leader, Will you go ahead and ask the people that you lead to pray for you? That's a big statement. When you lead your family, ask your family to pray for you. When you lead, ask the people that you lead to pray for you. Leadership is a heavy burden sometimes. It takes a toll on your soul which is why I think what Paul focuses on in this passage is not talent, it's not ability. He just focuses on character because he knows that when your soul continues to get pummeled, what's going to cause you to stand? Not ability, but character. Please pray for us. Please pray for us. Pray pray for people who lead around here. Pray that everything that we do really will be for God's glory and not ours. Pray that no matter what the demands of ministry are, that we will always take care of our families first. Pray that God will help us keep a tender heart that's quick to confess when we're wrong rather than a heart that's desensitized and prone towards cynicism. say, cynicism? Jeff, why would there be cynicism? I got an answer. People. People. Why would there be cynicism? People. Sometimes people will hurt you. Sometimes people will leave you. And you got to know what to do with that. It's one of those things as a, as a young pastor that, that um, I, I really had to learn how to process. Um, if, if you're okay at what you do, people tend to say things like, now don't you, don't you leave, don't you leave. The the first time, here's here's what happens. The first time a, a a church a little bit bigger comes along, he's gonna go. The the first time somebody comes along and offer him a little more money, to he's gonna go. Don't don't you leave. And then you know what I discovered a few years in the very people who sit across the table and tell you that stuff, they leave. They leave. And there's a part of you that when your heart's in this thing and you really believe what what you believe and you believe there is an urgency and you believe there is a seriousness to this thing and yet you watch them and they get a job offer for a few thousand dollars and they will pick up their family from a stable faith-building setting. They will pick up their family and move for a few thousand dollars, the very thing that they accused you of doing. People will leave you for money. They will. People will leave you for pleasure. People will leave you when their lives aren't what they want it to be, but they can find that in somewhere else that God says is off limits, but they will leave you for that. Sometimes they will leave you, you realize, for power or agenda. There have been times in ministry where I thought I had friendships that were actually trusted friendships only to find out later that what it really was was a power play. What it really was was an agenda deal. And as soon as their agenda or power play wasn't going to come to be, they exited now don't get me wrong, I, there are times that God sends people. That's the way it's supposed to work. God sends people out on mission, called to spread the good news. There are times that God sends people. But a whole bunch of times, it's just because people will leave you. They'll leave you when it gets tough. They'll leave you for comfort. Something's a struggle, and as long as it's good and it blesses, then they'll stay. But as soon as it becomes a struggle, sometimes they will move to where it is more comfortable sometimes I really do feel like Solomon you can go back and read about him he was described as the wisest man in the Old Testament time and Solomon makes a statement he says the wiser I get the more I understand people and the sadder I get sometimes I kind of understand that here's my point if you focus on that as a leader you will get cynical if you focus on that as a leader you will become critical if you focus on that as a leader you will fight depression but that cannot be where leaders focus leaders have to focus on the one that we say we're doing all this for leaders have to focus on the mission that we say demands an urgency and demands a sacrifice um, uh, Today, just be honest with you, we were going to show you, the the, uh, there's a baptism video that they put together from the big baptism celebration, and because we can't operate with the whole house stuff, we can't show it this week, we'll show it to you next week, but I'm just going to be honest with you, every once in a while, I just have to go back and watch a video. There are some days where I just have to go back and I got to watch 20 plus people walk through the water. I got to watch young hearts declare that they have been called to mission for Jesus. Sometimes I got to go back and I just got to zero in on those things that I know to be true, those things that I know is worth whatever it costs. And it answers the question, am I really doing this for Jesus or am I doing it for Jeff, am I doing it for praise? What am I I really doing this for? But I also wanna challenge you with this. When people fail you, when people betray you, just because somebody fails doesn't always mean they were fake. You hear me? When somebody fails you, it doesn't always mean they're fake. And I think the church has a bad habit of when leaders fail, we, we are immediately quick to criticize, well, they just weren't real. They, they, were, they were completely fake. All that was just a show. I don't think that's always the case. I don't think it always means they're fake. It just reveals the fact that the struggle is real and sometimes people fall in the struggle that struggles always going on that struggle is always real it is always intense and just cuz somebody fails doesn't mean they were not real back there it doesn't mean they were just a fake no it just means they they fell in the struggle Because it's hard to lead anything. Leaders face pressures that non-leaders don't grasp. Every once in a while, it does us well to remember. Noah, as I was reminded this morning, Noah was considered a righteous man. But I don't know how else to say this. Did you know that Noah got drunk and partied naked after God delivered him and his family from death? He did. Moses comes into ministry after he took someone's life. Jacob raised perhaps the most dysfunctional family that you could imagine. Judah slept with his daughter-in-law, but only because he thought she was a prostitute. David was a fantastic king. And then he saw Bathsheba. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived in the Old Testament times, but he struggled with sex, he struggled with God, and he struggled with cynicism. Elijah saw one of the most powerful displays of God's power in history. And then he fell into a self pitying depression. Jonah ran away from God. And then again, and then again. Peter denies Jesus. Thomas doubted even when he saw him. Paul was a little insecure. If you don't believe so, read 2 Corinthians. And when you read about that early Corinthian church, it is a study of dysfunction. But you know what? God used them all. It's because God uses broken people. That's because that's pretty much all the people he has. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not giving us a license to fail, a license to just say, oops, no. Avoiding the pitfalls makes my life much better. I don't want to fail. However, It is also important to remember that imperfection is not a reason to avoid leading. Imperfection is not a reason to avoid leading. Jesus is perfect. I'm just with him. Jesus is perfect. You're just with him. One more question. Will you serve Alongside your leaders it is the whole job of the whole church to do the whole ministry Here's what Paul tells us to that Ephesian church in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 Here's what he says so Christ himself gave the apostles the prophets the evangelists the pastors and teachers you ready? to equip to equip his people for works of service That's the leader's role, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, those character qualities growing in you to look look like Jesus, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Whatever it is, however God's gifted you, right? Whatever God's given you, he has called each of us to cross that line from sitting back as spectators to actively engaging and participating in this mission together that gives him glory. He has gifted you. How has God wired you for mission? If you've been coming to Heart of Life for some period of time now, but you have never gotten involved in ministry, I'm challenging you to take that step. Some of you, you just took that step of baptism, right? Why? Because it's the step Jesus calls you to take, you put your trust in Him, you follow Him in baptism, boldly declaring, hey, I'm, I'm yours. Well, next steps that He calls us to is He say, I don't call you to sit on the sideline and just soak this thing in. I, I call you to be on the field. I call you to be engaged in this mission. Some of you, you could simply indicate that, that we gave you that response card today. You can just write on there, hey, I, w- I want to know how I can serve around here. We don't have to make this complicated. You act, we also just have conversations. That's awesome. You could just have a conversation. We could talk. Hey, I, I want to know how I-, I can plug in around here so that we called and commissioned by God together as his hurt church here that we call Heart of Life It's the whole church together in ministry in all the various ways that he's gifted and called us to for the glory of God and for the good of the cities in which we live. To God be the glory. Let me pray for you. Lord, I pray that leaders would be encouraged today. God, I thank you for your grace. A grace that um, never sleeps. So God, whether it's in the middle of a high celebration or it's in the middle of a most difficult situation. God, whether it's standing in the the water at the farm, baptizing, or whether it's tears that are shed in the middle of a night. Your grace. We recognize today, God, it's you. It is you that holds us. It is you that equips us. It is you that sustains us. God, today I pray that leaders would be encouraged. God, I pray that people who need to be leading would be encouraged to take next steps. God, I pray for those that you really have gifted. You've brought them here for a purpose, God, that they, they serve a part in this body, hands, feet. God, your voice that goes out from this place, everybody apart. God, I pray that you would stir that within us and that you would call us to action. God, however difficult that may be sometimes, what Paul told the Ephesian church a long time ago, you shed your blood for this. This means so much to you. So God, will you give us an urgency? Will you guard our hearts from from cynicism? Will you guard our hearts from from being critical? God, would would you guard us from only seeing the negative side when we've got you? God, I pray that leaders would be encouraged. I pray that leaders would be raised up. God, I pray that your great name might be known in our neighborhoods, in our towns, in our state, in our country, and across this globe. As you use your people for your glory. God, thanks for the way you speak to us today. Help us to believe. Help us to repent. Help us to trust. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.